Let me open us with a word of prayer, and then uh, I'm going to ask the big question that Chris once asked every week. Where have you seen God at work this past week? Hopefully, you'll have seen something this week. Let's pray. Lord God, again, we're thankful for another beautiful day. We're thankful uh, that we live in the country we do, in the state we do, in the city we do, and that we are a part of this great church. We thank you for your faithfulness, your hand of faithfulness upon this congregation for over 175 years. And we pray that you'd, we would not be presumptuous about that, uh, but that we would uh, uh, plead your mercy and that you would see fit to keep your hand upon us from now until the day you return. Lord, uh, we pray for the Park family and uh, Lauren and Louise in the face of death, Lord, we thank you that uh, as we are coming right up on Easter, uh, we have the visible evidence in the bodily resurrection of Jesus that death is not the last word and that in the life of Christine and Dick, um, they now are in your unveiled glorious presence and we have your assured promise that one day the grand reunion will occur when we will see them again in eternity. Until then, keep us faithful. We pray for all the services today at the church that you'd pour through Bob and Mitchell the gift of preaching today. We pray that uh, you'd use me in some small way here in this class to help us get a greater insight into what it really means to be wise looking through the lens of the book of Ecclesiastes. And Lord, we just pray that you gift each one of us every day with an ever-deepening measure of faith in Christ that believes your sovereignty, that trusts your providence, that knows your presence, your power, your promises, and your peace at work in and through our lives, even when things are swirling around us. And so, Lord, may you be honored and glorified today. And we pray all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Okay, where have you seen God at work in your life or somebody else's life or just in the world in general this past week? Anybody want to share with me? Sandy? I lost my 16-year-old lab, uh, gosh, five years ago. I've not yet recovered. He, he was my best friend. <laughs> Where else have you seen uh, God at work? Nope. Well, the beauty of the countryside right now, um, without rain and so forth, it still has abundance of uh, rhubarb, you know, blooming everywhere. You know, it's just uh, gorgeous thing to, to look out and 
I've never seen them come up this early. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody else? Kind of what Sandy brought up and what Milt brought up leads into a very, you know, we're, this class is about wisdom literature. The whole premise of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament is that here is a blueprint in different ways, like Proverbs, now Ecclesiastes is a whole different genre of literature, but it's all about becoming wise in navigating life. And um, I'm reading right now the complete works of Francis Schaeffer, and he, um, just this morning, I'm, I'm reading about his approach to ecology, and he's, he says, you know, um, if you believe that creation is an accident of electromagnetic particles plus time plus chance, then if you really believe that, then you're going to look at human beings and animals and the creation totally different than if you believe this is the handiwork of a creator. So some people would say, well, you know, it's just a cat. But if you've had an an animal, a pet, a dog or a cat or a hamster or anything else, you know it's more than just a machine with fur on it, which is what it is if there is no creator. And blue bonnets, that's just a kind of a, a nice looking but just no meaning or purpose. Just what a coincidence that a beautiful flower came out of nowhere um, in this conglomeration of the, the universe. But if you believe that uh, there is a creator and you go, wow, there's a, there's, that tells me something about the creator. But it also says, you know, you appreciate that blue bonnet, but it also ought to say the way I treat creation. You know, Christians ought to be in the forefront of the environmental movement, not because we're going to become pantheists and hug trees and worship them. No. But we know who made everything. He's told us that we're to have dominion over it, which doesn't mean we can just bulldoze everything. We're to take care of it. And that one day, we're going to be answerable to the Creator for what we did. You know, I, I'm not a topical preacher. I always preach Lectio Continua, except one Sunday at Highland Park. Um, Earth Day fell on a Sunday. So I thought, and it was in the midst of all this climate change stuff. And I was a scientist before going in the ministry, so I, I approach everything scientifically, including my faith. And um, so I decided I'm going to preach a sermon on Earth Day. And the first half of the sermon was, uh, I said, I'm going to wear my science hat. And I've studied climate change very, there's always been climate change. Uh, yesterday, the high is going to be a lot lower than today. That's climate change. Um, they have about 34 drilling sites around the planet where they've drilled down miles and they can bring up a sample and they can show the strata and tell what happened in different ages climate-wise. And, you know, for instance, we know that there was a great ice age. Well, what made it go away? There was a drastic climate change. It wasn't from Fred Flintstone peddling his SUV around. Uh, a million years ago, you and I would be sitting under about 500 feet of water. 
right now. Um, that's not the case. Now, what made that change? And so there's always been drastic climate change throughout the millions of years. Um, I was stranded in Edinburgh, Scotland for two and a half weeks with the Iceland volcano that blew up. That volcano put more stuff into the air than China, India, and the United States in just a few days than we do in, in a year. And uh, this, uh, most science shows that our climate is based on um, solar flares, our climate change, and also the El Nino and El Nina, that affects our, so as a scientist, I would say there's definitely climate change. Notice that term's being used now, not global warming, because the globe's actually scientifically cooling, so you can't talk about that. When Tom and I, we were in the same class at Trinity, I believe, I remember ecology was just a brand new thing. I remember professors telling us because of carbon emissions, there was gonna be a new ice age that by the time we're our age now, you know, it might be the Statue of Liberty would be with icicles hanging on it, you know. Whoops, uh, that didn't happen. So a lot of this is, is, science is not so empirical and cut and dried as you think. It's a lot of guesswork, hypothesis, and a lot of faith. I threw Einstein's favorite, famous theory up on the, the board to make a couple of points. E stands for energy. Energy equals mass. Mass is like, you know, stuff, weight, times the speed of light squared. Well, what does that mean? You know, Einstein, all of his calculations, he came up with this and he said, this cannot be right. So he actually, for years, would fudge his figures because this, this went against the uh, orthodoxy of science at the time. And um, basically, this is, uh, explains the first law of thermodynamics, which says that uh, energy and matter cannot be added to or taken away. You, you can't destroy matter, did you know that? It just turns into energy. And you get this flux going back and forth. Um, and the second law of thermodynamics is that the universe is tending to randomness. Things are flying, moving away from each other. I remember as a freshman in college, I was a pre-veterinary major, so I'm having to take biology 101. The first semester was all about the second law of thermodynamics, how the universe was tending toward randomness. Then the second semester was all about Darwinian evolution. This was at the, and I had no dog in the fight. I was on a 10-year prodigal journey away from Christ. I just want to know what I needed to know for the test so I can make an A, so I can go to Texas A&M and be a large animal vet. That was my goal. But I remember listening to the professor talking about evolution. I was not an anti-evolutionist. Uh, seemed probable to me. But then I started thinking about the first semester and I raised my hand. And I said, uh, if the universe is tending toward randomness, uh, evolution seems to go in against that. Everything's coming. I'll never forget the professor said, hold that question. We'll come to that later. And in, in four years, we never 
had that I remember thinking to myself, again, I have no dog in the fight, but I was thinking, I smell a rat here. I smell a rat. You know, wisdom literature, the book of Ecclesiastes is really kind of a strange book. I'm glad our men's Bible study did it a few months ago because until then, even though I believe the Bible was the word of God from cover to cover, I thought Ecclesiastes was just a little weird and I was, I tended to gravitate only toward like Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8, which you know was recorded by the birds, only number one hit song by scripture. Um, and, but I, I wanted to go away from those vanity of vanity. And, 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 I mean, there's some really downer stuff in there. But our Bible study, I came to a whole new appreciation of Ecclesiastes, how wise it is. If you really want to understand life, read the book of Ecclesiastes. And I want to I make a point. There's a difference between wisdom and being smart. Um, when I was a junior in high school, I, I took earth science. And our teacher... He had a PhD in engineering from Ohio State University. And I didn't know enough then, but looking back now, I go, the guy was actually, must have been brilliant. But why was he teaching in a high school with a PhD? Well, I'm not gonna say his name, but we learned why. Every day for the whole year, someone would come and put a tack on his stool. And he'd sit down and go, oh, oh every day and you know after a while you know if you're wise you check the stool before you every day woof, woof. and then there was a bunch of other things we used to do to him and he <laughs> he was smart but he wasn't wise he really didn't know how to navigate a classroom of juniors in high school i contrasted him to james james was a custodian at Union Theological Seminary in Richmond, Virginia, where I went. And that's, James never went past the third grade. James was the chaplain to the students, the staff, and the faculty, the PhDs in New Testament and, and theology. If you had a problem, serious problem, everybody went to James. James had six kids. He put all six through college on a custodian salary at at Union Seminary, which didn't even pay its faculty very much, let alone custodians. You see the difference? There's how you navi navigate life. And of course, I don't know the teacher in high school, whether he was a Christian or not. I, I don't know. But I know that James was. And really, the, the theme of Ecclesiastes, it's the one book in the Bible is better than any other, I would say, that takes sin seriously, the fall of humankind, uh, the brokenness of life, and Solomon, who we attribute it to, because um, it says it's uh, actually, the, it's titled Korath, which just means preacher. That's Ecclesiastes comes out, our English word to that. Uh, but there is a reference to son of David, king of Jerusalem. Well, there are other sons of David there also. But Solomon seems to be the, probably the most likely author of this. I used to always wonder, if Solomon was so wise, why did he marry multiple women and have 700 concubines? I mean, you know, um, my wife's not here so I can tell this joke. Uh, 
And you, you didn't hear this from me if she says, what? Um, there's this guy and he finds one of those Aladdin's lamps, you know, and he, huh, he rubs it and a genie pops out. Genie says, hi, I'm the genie of the bottle and I've given you one wish. What would you like? Anything. The guy goes, well, I really love Hawaii, but I, I'm scared to fly and I live in Los Angeles. Um, could you build a highway from the California coast to Hawaii? The genie goes, do you know what kind of engineering feat that would be, even for me? He was a genie, do you realize the depth of the ocean? And I have to go over to the whatever, whatever trench, and, uh, and the guy goes, oh, okay. And the genie goes, please, could you come up with another wish? The guy says, okay. Hmm. Can you help me understand women? The genie says, how many lanes you want on that highway? Uh, our, we, us guys, we're not wise enough to figure you guys out. No way. Um, okay, I want to throw a little piece of information to help you be wise. Because one of the things Ecclesiastes does, in the midst of all this brokenness and everything, he keeps weaving in that the way you navigate all of the seemingly meaningless stuff in life, the brokenness, the vanity, the ups and downs, you know, you build a big career and then you die and who do you leave all your stuff? All that kind of stuff is, we, he says, but if you're anchored in the fear of God, you'll be able to navigate this world wisely. Fear of God. We don't talk about that much anymore. Ecclesiastes does. And when we talk about the fear of God, it is not a, a pathological, you know, like a Tyrannosaurus Rex came into the room right now we'd have a pretty healthy fear to start flying out the windows. It's, not, it's talking about a, a holy, awesome reverence for just who God is. And when you look at this, Einstein kept saying, if this is true, it's, it kept driving him, he was an atheist, kept driving him to think that this looking like there's some kind of intelligence far above Humanity putting all this, and he, and he didn't want to go that way, so he fudges figures. And um, then in 1964, the paradigm shifts in science. You've heard of the Big Bang Theory. Up until then, well, up until then, Christians and theists, when when the basic philosophical question is asked, why is there something rather than nothing, would say, well, there's a creator and he made the universe and he made us. And uh, Augustine f drilled down on that and he came up with the Latin phrase, creatio ex nihilo. Not only is there a creator, but he created out of nothing. And of course, the secular world laughed at, at uh, Augustine. And after the so-called enlightenment, most scientists, in fact, professors I studied with at Trinity who were Christians, they learned how to compartmentalize their faith. They were Christians on Sunday, and then they had to please the academia and toe the line and talk about Darwinian evolution, all that, which there's no way you can believe Darwinian evolution and, and believe in God at the same time. You just you can't do it. But they would teach that. They had figured out how to compartmentalize. Um, which we should never do. 
you know, we're to be men and women as Christians of integrity, meaning integrate, integrate Jesus Christ into every facet of your life, your business, your scientific outlook, whatever it is you're doing. Everything has a spiritual dimension to it. But the Big Bang Theory happens as scientists with these big, uh, these space telescopes, and they're studying the radiation background, and it's telling them that Augustine was right, that there was a time when there was no time and space nor matter, that out of nothing, boom, there was this thing, in the, and that's why the universe is expanding. When they launched the Hubble telescope, this further proved it. And so your run-of-the-mill secular astrophysicist today would say there was a time when there was no matter at all. And there's a significant moment in time they, they were able to calculate 13.8 billion years ago that the Big Bang occurred. And with the Hubble telescope, they've learned some other things. And I, if you've taken other classes with me, I always come around to this, because you need to know this. There's never been a time in the history of the world when faith and science have been better friends than they are right now. Everything in science is backing up everything in here. In fact, the Hubble telescope enabled us to study the Milky Way, our galaxy, to such an extent that they came up with the term, secular scientists came up with the term, the anthropic principle. And that says, it looks like every planet in our solar system, every star, everything is in the exact position and the right size and, and geometric orbits and everything else, all to support life on one tiny planet down in the corner of the galaxy. Well, Hubble, now they've launched this Jim Webb telescope, which is going to be able enable us to look even further back. What they're also finding is that, you're, I'm going to blow you away, that not only the Milky Way, there, there are billions of additional galaxies with trillions of stars. And that all the data coming in on that is that if any one of those stars anywhere in the universe or any planet or any galaxy was bigger or smaller or in a different position, life could not exist here on the Earth. Now, first law of thermodynamics, you cannot destroy matter or create matter or energy. Um, this is going to blow you away. If you and I could add to the entire known universe, billions of galaxies, the amount of matter in a dime, a thin dime, either add it to the universe or subtract it, life could not exist here on planet Earth. I'm not making this up. These, this is what scientists are telling us. It is that precisely fine-tuned. Now, here's what's really messed up. The secular, a lot of these secular scientists, they're smart, but they're not wise. What's really messed them up is, see, the Big Bang, they hate it. Because until then, they said the universe has just been eternal. So there's always been infinite time. Well, the more time you have, the more likely that maybe a 
frog would evolve over a period of time with electromagnetic particles and time and chance making them collide and produce a frog. Um, over an infant year, they could always say, well, it just, you just need to take more time, more time. Now the Big Bang says, no, you only got 13.8 billion years. And they're running all the computer models now saying that not even a simple, single cell could evolve out of um, abiogenesis, mean without life, and turn into life and evolve in 13.8 billion years. You'd have more chance of going to Las Vegas every day for a thousand years and hitting the jackpot every day than that could ever happen. So you've got the top atheist, he just died recently, Anthony, Anthony Flew, he became a Christian before he died and it set the atheistic world rocking. Anyway, that's all to say that uh, wise is all about living your life, it doesn't matter how smart you are, but if you're, if you're a healthy fear of God, uh, you can navigate life wisely. Um, and that's what Ecclesiastes is all about. Um, let's turn in your booklet um, to page 104. And let's just go through these. Gosh, the time just goes so quickly here. I'm sorry. Um, if you look at page 104, Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, and some translations say vanity, vanity. Um, and, and this goes back to what it means to be wise. If you don't believe that there's a God, if you don't have a healthy, reverent, awesome fear of a creator, and that this did all just come about by chance, then what is, you know, Darwinian evolution will stress to you. I remember this was another thing that, that blew me away when I was a student. Again, I'm not trying to kick against the goads. I want to make an A. They would say it is totally random and purposeless, Darwinian evolution. Then the next sentence, a professor would say, well, apparently it was an organism and he figured out that, you know, if I had an eyeball, that would be better. I could maybe find stuff to eat. I'm sitting there going, wait a minute, isn't that purpose? Isn't that meaning? I mean, it's a purpose behind evolving an eye. Not raise my hand, isn't that a purpose? No, no, everything's random and meaningless. I'm like, whoa. If you don't believe there's a creator, then there is no purpose to anything. Your cat died, why, were you, why are you sad? There's no purpose, you know, if, there's no meaning there. You shouldn't have any affection for that cat because that's, there's, it's just a random conglomeration of molecules with some fur on it. The sad thing is, if you, all, if you and I really believe that, that's the way we start looking at each other and ourselves. You know, talk about self-esteem. If you think you're an accident in the universe, uh, what does that do for your self-esteem? And how does that affect the way you treat other people? Um, we see the results of that in spades now across our culture. Unfortunately, if we're not careful, just being a Christian doesn't immediately immunize you from that. Um, we can be a, you can be a Christian and because and you're a sinner, and I'm a sinner. I grew up as a racist. I'm a recovering racist. I just, that was my culture. 
And I've had to, except I went to the only church in my town that was integrated, because it was a big missions church. So I, we had blacks, but they were all from Africa, and Asians and Hispanics, because we're big missions. And during the week, I compartmentalized my life. I, lived in a, I grew up in an Irish Catholic neighborhood, and we were all racist. On Sunday, though, I knew it was wrong. I knew it was sin. And, but it took me a while to work through that. But you know, you can't be a, a, a authentic Christian to be a racist. Um, when I look at the issue of abortion, um, you know, how, how can you, know, you look at that any other than a human being, a developing human being? Um, and I realize there's all kinds of extenuating circumstances, but I don't think you can you know, try to say that's not a human being. Um, I'm a biologist. I have a master's in reproductive, theolo uh, reproductive physiology. <laughs> and, and when I hear, uh, I'm not just trying to single somebody out, but it's, we live in this Alice in Wonderland, so unwise culture. When they ask a Supreme Court nominee, what is a woman? Well, I don't know, I'm not a biologist. <laughs> Wait a minute. She may be very smart, and I think she knows. She's just, she has to toe a political line. But you know, that's where our cultures come to. And if, if you don't know what a woman is, then um, what's the right way to treat a woman? Well, if you don't know what a woman is, you're not gonna treat them right. So, um, big difference between wisdom and being smart. And the, the author of Ecclesiastes, you know, keeps throwing this vanity is vanity, and he's trying to make the point that if you don't live in a healthy, healthy uh, fear of God relationship with your creator, things are gonna start looking meaningless, and the culture's saying that, and you'll be sucked into it and start to believe it. Um, I'm gonna rush through some things here. Turn to page 106, and here's one of my big beefs in life. Um, it says, so what do people get in this life for all their hard work and anxiety? Their days of labor are filled with pain and grief. Even at night, their minds cannot rest. It is all meaningless. And I think he's, he's elevating there for us the way, one way that the majority of people look at their work. You know, they've done studies of Americans, and something like 66% of Americans hate their jobs. You know, and so they see their job as pretty much meaningless. What difference would it make if you began to, my big thing is business as ministry. I wanna talk about that all the time. I had an elder in Baltimore at my church. He invented the knee and hip replacement, Dave Hungerford, Johns Hopkins. And I'm glad I got two hips and a knee. Um, and I'm pain free because of it. But he showed me his brochure that he gives with the perspective person he's gonna operate on. And it talks about the procedure before, during, and after. And he says on there, you need to know I'm a Christian. What that means is I will be praying for you before, during, and after your surgery. That's all it says. It doesn't say come to Christ or I'm not going to, or I'll kill you on the table or something. <laughs> um, and I said, Dave, that is wonderful. And he goes, yeah. And I want him to know. That's, this is my ministry. I'm not here to make money, although he made <laughs> a lot of money. And uh, this is my ministry. Do you see your business as ministry? What if you're retired or rewired like I am? Well, it doesn't matter. Whatever you do, do you see your life primarily as ministry? 
If, if not, you're probably going to, you know, if your life doesn't have meaning and purpose for the kingdom, then you're liable to fall into this trap of, oh gosh, and I built this great company and now my son's wrecking it. Um, if that's your attitude. So, you know, work, bef God gives Adam work before the fall. So work's not a, you know, I'm going to punish you by making you have to work for a living. Uh, it's part of being made in the image of God. God's a creator, a manufacturer, and that's part of our uh, being made in imago dei. Flip over to page 110, and um, I've used this in weddings as the homily text, two are better than one, and, uh, you know, then it says a cord of three strands is not equally or easily broken. Um, I used to hate the term religion. When I'd fill out a form and say religion, I'd put none. I was into this, it's all about relationship, not religion. And there's truth to that. I mean, the Christian faith is all about a relationship. But then I learned what religion, the term, actually means. Anybody know what the term religion literally means? No? Nope? Okay, I'll answer for it. It simply means connected. Connected. That's all it means. Connected. I read that and I thought, whoa, I'm reassessing how I think of religion. You hear your mostly millennial people going, uh, I'm spiritual but not religious. Meaning, I ain't going to join your church. I'm not going to get connected. I go out in the hillside by myself with my Bible and, or something else and I commune with the God of whatever. That sounds good. It's totally non-biblical and it's totally bogus. Again, being made in the image of God. What do we learn from the Trinity? The first thing the Trinity teaches us is that God in his very essence is community, a triune community. Uh, Genesis 1, let us, in the Hebrew is plural, let us make man in our image. You, you get the hint of the Trinity right from the beginning. God in his very own essence is a relational loving being. The Father loves the Spirit who loves the Son, vice versa, and always has. Um, love is at the very heart of the universe because it's at the very heart of God. And as Father relates to Son, as relates to Holy Spirit, being made in the image of God means we're not meant to be Lone Ranger Christians. You're not to go it on your own. And we're to be, that's why, you know, I'm, I was thankful for Zoom when this pandemic hit. I was also thankful that I already retired and didn't have to make all the decisions that these, all these pastors are making. They're all getting killed for it. Every pastor is getting killed. One half of the congregation is going, you haven't shut the church down now. You're trying to kill us. The other side is going, you shut the church down. It shows you have no faith. And so every pastor was doomed. And I don't know one pastor that hadn't gotten killed through all this. And, um, but I'm grateful for Zoom. And I have to admit, when Ann and I would worship uh, here at First Pres, from the convenience of our den, I could wear anything I want. I could sit there and eat breakfast. Uh, if I had to go to the bathroom, I'd just get up and walk out. Um, if I didn't like the sermon, I could switch over to, you know, First Pres Houston or something, you know? <laughs> Uh, don't tell about it. We didn't. We never did that. I'm just trying to look for a cheap laugh. 
Um, but you know, I talked to pastors, and I said, what's your biggest fear? We're afraid a lot of people will never come back. Well, this is so convenient. We don't have to get the kids dressed. If they're screaming and crying, we can beat them up right there, and nobody's going to stop us. And, um, but you know, we weren't meant. We were meant to be together in physical presence. That's why the bodily resurrection of Christ is a non-negotiable. Jesus came not via Zoom. He came in the flesh, related with touch, hugs. And we're to be relational beings at our very essence. So religion, um, the two chords, uh, you know, when I preach this at a wedding, I say the third chord is, you know, the, the husband and wife are one, and, and Jesus is that, that central you know, tempered steel cord that can't be broken because husband and wife, you can't keep your marriage together, but Jesus is the only hope for doing that. And, um, okay, so religion is very important in the term, in the sense of being connected. Thank you for being here this morning and not listening on this podcast later. Uh, sorry, those of you that are listening on the podcast later in the week. Get down here. Okay, um, turn to page 112, Ecclesiastes 7.1. A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. Well, that seems like a downer. Um, what's more important, that bottle of Chanel number five you have or your reputation? What's worth more? If life is meaningless and there's no creator, then maybe that bottle of Chanel is worth more than you are. Maybe it has more elements in it that would cash out on the market better than your conglomeration of carbon atoms. I don't know. And the day of death better than the day of birth. Boy, that is just a totally negative statement. No, it's not. Now, I've never met a pastor except one. who said they'd rather do a wedding than a funeral. <laughs> Possibly one. Who's ever said that to me? Why would I say something? Why would you want to do a funeral? When you do a wedding, this is my perspective, and every other pastor I've talked to has the same perspective. When you're doing a wedding, nobody gives a rip what you're saying during your homily or anything else. They're checking out the bridesmaids. They're wondering if there's an open bar at the reception. Um, they're not tuned in to the gospel. Well, some are, but in general, uh, they're there. It's a social thing, and let's get to the reception. When you do a funeral, I guarantee you every time I get in the pulpit, I don't care who's there, atheists, people who believe in unicorns, they are hanging on your every word. They all want a word of hope. And uh, so <laughs> I'd rather preach a funeral than a wedding any day. And the day of your death really is better than the day of your birth. What's going to happen to you on the day of your death? You're going to be in the unveiled, glorious presence of Christ. I, you know, somebody... I think it was Reinhold Niebuhr said, the reason the Bible says little about heaven is because there's not human language to express how glorious it is. 
And if we could, we'd turn it into an idol and worship it. So I, I, I really believe that's true. He used to say, that the Bible says little about the furniture of heaven nor the temperature of hell. Um, but both are true. But we'd make an idol out of the first one. I don't think there's words to explain what it is going to be like. And of course, you know, theologically we talk about justification. That's when you're born again. Um, when your heart's regenerated by the Holy Spirit and you're declared not guilty. Then there's sanctification. That's your life until you die where you and the Holy Spirit are trying to cooperate and trying to live a Christian life to honor God, not to earn your salvation. That's already been sealed. So you're saved by grace and justification. But then we do have an obligation to do good works, to say thank you, and to, because we value other people and animals and the creation because they're all made by the, lovingly by the Creator and they have value and meaning and purpose. But then the last step is glorification. That is when you're in uh, the unveiled glorious presence of Christ. But, but really, that's with a small g. The big g glorification comes when Christ returns, brings his kingdom into fulfillment, and then guess what you and I get? Resurrection bodies. Until then, we are a disembodied spirit with Christ, conscious. We know where we are and who we're with, but we're not... God did, not, God did not make us to be disembodied spirits. We're made flesh, but we're not Platonists. Plato said the only thing of value is spiritual, not the physical. No, God made heaven and earth. And I can pretty much convince you, I think, if I took you through Revelation, that heaven will be a recreation of the earth and the universe and all of its goodness, minus all the brokenness and sin and disease and death. And we will be truly human for the first time, without sin, in a resurrection body, just like Christ, except we're not going to be deity. We're not Mormons. We don't believe that we become gods. Um, who, can you imagine what it must feel like to really be authentically, totally authentically human? I can. But it's going to be glorious. And that's the way it's going to be for eternity. Never have to look back on that. So um, that's wisdom. That's the wisdom that comes from Scripture. One last thing, and um, turn to page 116. This is back to the, this kind of sums up Ecclesiastes. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Here the author, Solomon, brings it all together. This is what this book is about. This is what life is about. There's brokenness, ups and downs, crazy stuff going on. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Fear God and keep his commandments. And Paul took us through the Ten Commandments. Who here is kept the Ten Commandments. If you raise your hand, we're going to have a talk outside of the class. <laughs> Nobody has. And yet, back to justification. We have broke them, but Christ has completely 
infinitely kept the Ten Commandments on our behalf. His righteousness is imputed to us. Again, that's, that's a part of wisdom to know that you can't save yourself. That you don't need to even try. You can't. Wisdom is knowing that what you can't do or ever could do for yourself, Christ has done for you. And that um, at the cross, he made that once for all sufficient, perfect, infinite sacrifice. And uh, still that should generate a very healthy, awesome, reverent fear of God. But we still try to keep the commandments to say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, even though we stumble and fall. We can never do it perfectly, but we will be held accountable. You know, the judgment day does not mean you and I get off scot-free. It does mean the gates of hell are barred forever. We don't have to fear that, but it does say we're all going to be held accountable. And I don't know exactly what that means, but I'm not looking forward to it. But I know that uh, Jesus is my defense attorney. And that Satan is going to come out and accuse me of all kinds of stuff. And, uh, but Jesus is going to step forward and say, I paid, I paid the price. But I, I guess it's going to feel uncomfortable. Uh, I knew a theologian who said, you know, one of the reasons we're called to live a sanctified life is the more we do that, the more it fits us for heaven. His theory was that you know, if well, I'm saved by grace, I'm just going to you know, skate through life doing what I want to do, but hanging on to Jesus just enough to get me in. He said his theory was that when you arrive in heaven, it's not going to feel like home. It's going to take you, it's kind of the Protestant version of purgatory. It's going to take you a while to feel your way into feeling like this is, I don't know if that's true or not, but um, we're saved by grace, folks. And until you really understand that, you'll never be wise. Never be wise. And thank God we have a creator who loves us, who's done everything for us for our salvation. And to help us navigate, I think I said last week, my theory about the Lord of the Rings is that if you have the right companion, you can make any journey. And uh, that's part of what Ecclesiastes is saying. If you have that relationship with God and other believers, you're going to make it through this journey. You're going to make it through this journey. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes, the great insight into what real wisdom looks like. Uh, Lord, help us never fool ourselves just because we've got degrees behind our names or certain educational institutions we've gone through. We may be smart, but that doesn't make us wise. Uh, take us ever deeper into a relationship with yourself, with a good healthy fear, at the same time balancing that with your unconditional love and mercy and grace toward each one of us, demonstrated how far you were willing to go uh, by the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And may we live to his glory this day and from now on. For we pray it in his name. Amen. Chris will be back with us next week. And when we finish up this series, I think there's like five weeks after Easter until this class breaks for the summer, I've been told. And I believe Paul's going to uh, take that five weeks. Then when we come back in August, I'm going to do a 12-week series on the Apostles' Creed. We're going to go in depth on the Apostles' Creed, drill down on 
just what that means for our faith. Okay, head to worship.